Today we are continuing our series through the book of Colossians. My name is Eric Channing. If you are new with us, I'm the lead pastor here, and we've been going through this series in the book of Colossians, and today we come to chapter 3, starting in verse 18. So if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open it up, turn it on, or look on the screens as I read God's Word here for us. Starting in verse 18, we'll go through chapter 4 of verse 1. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. As we come to understand God's word together, let's pray now. Father in heaven, we are weak and you are strong. We are needy and you have what we need. And Lord, you have given us what we need through your word. And so we pray by the power of your spirit that you would speak to us now, that you would open up our hearts and help us to hear your voice. We pray that in Christ's name, amen. Well, as a pastor, I often receive some interesting comments from well-meaning people. And one of these times, a number of years ago, I met a man, and, and as typical men do, you say your names, and then the first thing you say is, well, what do you do? I find women don't always ask that question when I ask Sarah, like, well, what does that woman do? She's like, I don't know. I would never, would never ask a woman that. But anyway, men always ask, what do you do? And so, of course, I told him, I'm a pastor. And this man uh, looked a little bit troubled, a little taken aback. Sometimes people change the subject when, when, you, when you do this. But he was genuinely concerned for me. He said, you know, well, so you work on Sundays, but, but what do you do the rest of the week? And uh, perhaps he, he thought, you know, a pastor just showed up on Sunday and then and did something else the rest of the week. Well, when it comes to living out our faith, Many times we have this same kind of mentality. Yeah, I hear what happens on Sunday. I've, I've heard God's word, but what does it mean for me Monday to Saturday? How do I live out my faith in my family, in my work? And that's exactly what this passage before us addresses. How to honor Christ in our everyday relationships. 
So if you haven't been here in a, uh, for a while, or maybe this is your first time, we're going through the book of Colossians, and in chapter 3, Paul is telling us, he's been telling us the whole book, but basically he has said, if you are a Christian, if you have, uh, if you have trusted in Christ, you are a new creation, and therefore we're supposed to become who we are. Just as we came to faith by grace, through faith, we came to Jesus that way, so also we are to grow. So we need to become who we are, and he's been telling us different ways that we can do that. Because when we become Christians, we are not fully formed. We are kind of like my two-year-old son, Blake, when he wears my shoes, size 13 shoes, and he's walking around. He has, we have a lot of uh, room to grow, just like, just like he does. And that's what happens in our Christian life. So, so Paul is saying here, set your eyes on the things above. Set your minds on the things above and put to death whatever belongs to your former life. Put to death those things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, put those all away. That was last week. And then he says, put off any remnants of the sinful nature, whether it's lying or anger or slander, like dirty clothes, put those off and put on the new man. Put on humility, put on kindness, Above all these, put on love, he says. In an environment where we're letting the peace of Christ reign and the word of Christ dwell in our hearts. And then at the end of the passage we got to last week, there's an important verse that helps us interpret today's passage. And it says this. Whatever you do, verse 17 of chapter 3, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means wherever God has called you, whatever circumstance of life you find yourself in, we are called to do everything as if Jesus himself were doing that thing. We're to be his representatives. We're to honor him in all that we do. And now we get to this point in the letter where he's saying, this is how it works out in your most intimate of relationships, in your household, in your workplaces. And here Paul is going over these household tables, as it's been called, or household codes. These were common in the first century. This is probably the earliest household code or table that that we find, but it was common in the first century and beyond. And Paul is saying, not like the secular people who would do this, but he's saying, this is how you do live out these codes as a Christian, as one who follows Jesus. And so the overarching theme in our passage this morning, if you're thinking of a banner over this passage, it is the Lordship of Christ. The Lordship of Christ is the banner over this passage. And within that comes this call to serve Jesus as Lord by following his blueprint for our everyday lives. Serve Jesus as Lord by following his blueprint for everyday relationships. And so this passage dives into the heart of our personal lives. It invades us right where we live, in our living rooms, in our workplaces, and it shines a light into how we are to follow Christ in these areas. And so the text is organized around three sets of commands. You, You heard a lot of commands when I read out the text, and those commands need to be taken together. There's sets of two commands, three times repeated, and different people that are addressed. 
and they will show us how we can practically serve Jesus as Lord in our everyday lives. So here they are. First, we're called to serve Jesus as Lord in marriage. That's in verses 18 and 19. And then how we're to serve Jesus as Lord in our family life. That's in verses 20 to 21. And then how we're called to serve Jesus as Lord at work. That's in verses 22 through the first verse of chapter 4. So first, we're called to serve Jesus as Lord in marriage. It has been said that who you are at home is who you are. So if you want to know really what you're like, just think about what you're like at home. Because at home, there's no pretense. At home, you say things that you may not say in public. You may make noises that you don't make in public. There's all sorts of things that happen at home that you would not do in public. It's at home where we really, what we really believe is revealed. And here in verse 18, Paul turns his attention to the most intimate of all earthly relationships when he says this, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Perhaps no verses have created more angst or more misunder, have been more misunderstood than these verses in a Christian marriage. And wives, yes, you did hear this correctly. Paul did lead with the S word here. He says that wives are called to submit to husbands. And lest we write off this command, saying it's not culturally relevant, it's not appropriate anymore, we need to remember that it's not just found here in Colossians, but this command is found throughout the entirety of the New Testament. In Ephesians 5, in Titus 2 in 1 Peter 3. This is a principle that God has laid out for marriages. So we need to understand what it means and what it does not mean. So what does submission mean? The great New Testament scholar uh, Doug Moo says this. This is how he defines submission. He says it's a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. A voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. This definition assumes two things. First, that submission is a choice. It's not forced upon you. It's a choice. It's a voluntary recognition. And second, that someone is designated as the leader. You don't submit just to anybody. You submit to the leader. So in the context of this verse here in Colossians, this means that God is calling wives to voluntarily recognize the leadership of their husbands and to put themselves under their husband's leadership. To flesh out what this means, I think first we need to explain what it does not mean because I can almost feel some people say, well, hey, hey, I'm, I'm mad right now. Uh, not mad at me, but you're mad about this verse. So what does submission not mean? Let's first talk about what it doesn't mean and then what it does mean. Well, first, submission is not a statement about value or ability. Here, God is not saying that wives are uh, less important or less gifted or somehow lesser than their husbands. It doesn't mean that the wife is somehow unequal to the husband, just as we would never say that Jesus is unequal to God the Father. And yet Jesus, in his earthly life, submitted to the Father in everything. Submission is about role. It's not about value. So that's the first thing. Submission is not a statement about value. 
Second, submission does not mean unquestioned obedience. That means, wives, your husband is not your master. You have one master, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not called here to obey your husband in everything. You're called to willingly submit to your husband. It's, it's a big difference. That means if you're being forced to do something that is sinful, that contradicts, contradicts your master, the Lord Jesus, or if you are being abused in some way, you need to speak out. You need to tell others about that, whether it's a, another woman or a pastor or someone else. That's, this verse has been used by so many men to kind of abuse their wives. That's not what this passage is saying. So, It's not unquestioned obedience. It's also not uh, squelching the way that God has made you. If you are a strong woman, if you are a leader, it doesn't mean you have to pretend like you're weak or not a leader. It's not talking about this. It doesn't mean that you should roll over and be a doormat while your husband makes all the decisions. That's not submission. You are co-equals before God, but you have different roles. So your husband needs your voice in this relationship. So that's what it's not. It's, it's not a statement about value. It's not unquestioned obedience. What is submission, submission then? What, what is it? How can we do this, wives? Well, first, submission means that you are going to willingly support and encourage your husband's leadership. No matter how much room he needs to grow, how much he fails, you're going to support and encouragement his efforts to lead. You're called to help him in this role that he's been given by God. Second, submission means that you acknowledge and embrace God's design for marriage. That's what the second half of verse 18 is all about, as is fitting in the Lord. This means, as is fitting, this is how God set up marriage to work. This isn't a cultural uh, anomaly in the first century. This is how God has set up marriage to work all the way back in Genesis before the fall with the husband as the leader and the wife as the helper. And so submitting for you wives, God is calling you to submit as a response to your God-given role as helper. This also means that submission involves putting to death your old nature with its sinful desires. So why did Paul just say this one thing about marriage for for women? I mean, he could have said, like, love your wives. He could have said, or love your husbands. He could have said all sorts of things to the wives. But he said, submit to your husbands. I think it's because this is the one area, perhaps the greatest area where wives are tempted to indulge their own old sinful nature and usurp the leadership of their husbands or not respect their role in the marriage. And so, wives, for you, if you are tempted to do this, if you are tempted to lead over your husband, if you are tempted to not respect his leadership, perhaps you need to take off those old garments of the sinful nature. There's a lot more we could say about submission, but we need to move on. The next command within marriage comes to husbands in verse 19. So husbands, listen up, or or any men, listen up. Love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
So husbands, this is a high call for any one of us. Men, this is a high call for you if you hope to be married someday. This call to love is not merely saying I love you every single day, which I would definitely affirm, or giving your wife flowers on Valentine's Day, or going on occasional dates. All good things, all things that I would affirm. It's not just that. If you think about the context of Ephesians 5, who is kind of like a parallel uh, passage to this one, Paul says that loving our wives is to model how Christ loves the church. How does Christ love the church? But sacrificially, giving up himself for her. And so we are called men to give up ourselves for our wives, our will for hers, our desires for hers, to provide an environment where, where she might be built up in her faith so that she might reach her full potential. Remember what leadership is in God's economy. Leadership is not barking the orders to everybody. Leadership is taking the position of a servant. Remember what Jesus said in Luke 22. He said, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. So husband or man, as the the leader of your family, you are called to love your wife through serving her. And you're called to love her by leading her, by taking the initiative spiritually in, in any other area of life. There's no room for passivity in this command. There's no room for couch potato husbands who say, go fetch me a sandwich while I watch the game. This is a call to give up our very lives for our wives. Well, what does this kind of sacrificial love look like? What does it look like in real life? I think of the story of Robertson McQuilkin. Robertson McQuilkin was a president. He was the president of what is now Columbia International University. And he was at the height of his career. He was the president of university who's eight years from retirement. And his wife, Muriel, developed Alzheimer's. And she got to the point where whenever McQuilkin was close to her, she was happy, she was comforted. But whenever he was away, she was agitated and even angry. And so he made the decision at the pinnacle of his career, he had got to the place where he wanted to be in life, he made the decision to quit his job and care for her. And in his uh, resignation speech, he said this. He said, this was one of the simplest and clearest decisions that I had to make. It was this one. He goes on to say, she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. And then he started to choke up as he said this. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, but that I get to. I love her very dearly. She is a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. That's what sacrificial love looks like. But again, I can hear some rebuttals from the crowd. Your thoughts are kind of, I I can hear these. (laughs) Uh, That's great, Eric. Uh, You don't know my spouse. (laughs) not as wonderful a person as that. You don't know how difficult they are to live with. 
And I would say, you're right. I, I'm not in each of your homes. I don't know everything about you. But Jesus Christ does. He does. And he has called you to this marriage. And perhaps today you need to step back and remember God's design for marriage. What is marriage but a picture, a living picture of the gospel, of the way that Christ sacrificially loves his bride, the church, and how the church willingly submits to him. It's a living picture of the gospel. So if we do not live out of these roles, we mar that picture before a watching world. If we are unwilling to submit to our husbands, we are marring the picture of the gospel. If we're unwilling to sacrificially lead our wives, we are marring this picture of the gospel. So today I would challenge you to listen to his voice regarding your role in marriage and to ask God to give you the strength to fulfill this role. This isn't something that we just do once and then we're good. This is something we need to re-up probably many times, sometimes multiple times a day because our flesh fights against it. Well, some of you are there thinking like, well, I'm not married. I'm either widowed, I'm single, I'm a child. Uh, These verses don't even apply to me. And I would say not so fast to that. Before disregarding these verses, If you hope to be married one day, we need to know what those roles that God has called us to look like. So we need to take heed and and listen. But you may be single and you, you give advice to married people. And I've been around a lot of situations where single people or just any people give bad advice to married people that are not advice that's not in line with God and his word. So we need to pay attention to God's template when we're counseling married couples. But even if you can't find yourself in those two scenarios, above all, we can all pray for the marriages here at Hope Fellowship. We need help. Anyone who's married could say amen to that. We need your help through prayer because as marriages are built up here, as we're living in line with the gospel, as he's called us to in marriage, it's a beautiful witness to an outside watching world. We need your help. Well now, after addressing the need for the Colossian church to serve Jesus in marriage, Paul now turns his attention to the parent-child relationship there in verse 20 and 21. And so we see our second call in this passage, which is to serve Jesus as Lord in the home. So I see there's some kids here. Some are a little young. They're not going to understand, but you can still look up. So kids, if you're here, just kind of look up for a second. This passage right now, this part of the message is directly addressed to you. And so I want you to hear this word, kids. Okay, kids, we got some attention. Yeah, some are looking up now. All right, good. Yeah, whoa, the pastor's talking to me. Yeah. Uh, This word is for you from the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus is speaking to you, children, right here. So listen to this. He says, children, obey your parents. This isn't your parents saying it. This is Jesus. Jesus is saying from his word, obey your parents. Well, you might be thinking, what do I need to obey? It says in everything. Wow, that that seems hard. It seems impossible, maybe, for some of you. You may be wondering, why do I need to obey these rules my parents have set up? Why do I need to obey things that sometimes I don't understand? 
And that's a really fair question. It's a good question. And the reason why is in the second half of that verse, in verse 20, it's because obeying your parents pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. Even if you're not getting along with your parents, even if you don't understand why you have the rules that you have, kids, you're to obey because this is a way to serve your master, Jesus, the one who loves you, the one who has bought you with a price. He has given you your parents. And even though they are imperfect, he has given them to you for your good. He's given you as their, your primary authority at this time in life. So what does obedience mean, kids? I know it's a long time to be listening to me. So what does obedience mean? It means not resisting the guidance and the rules that your parents have laid down, both in the way you do things, but also in your heart, in your attitude. We all know you can obey some things, but you're like really frustrated while you're obeying. If you're like stomping off like this, your heart attitude probably isn't where it needs to be. And as we're thinking about obedience, I need to make one important clarification, just one quick clarification. This is probably not happening in your home, but if you are a kid and your parents are asking you to do something that you know Jesus says is wrong, they're asking you to uh, do things that you feel guilty about and wrong about, you need to go tell another adult about that. You really do. And whether that's a, a, a friend that, and another adult or a teacher or a pastor, you need to tell somebody about that. But that's a very unique situation. In everything else, you are called to obey. Jesus is the one you need to obey over all others. So if your parents are asking you to do something, it means obeying right away from with a willing heart. Some of your, some of your parents probably have uh, some, some phrases you've already taught your kids, but that's what you're called to do. Because kids, when you obey your parents, you are setting a foundation for obedience to authority in all the other areas of your life, whether it's a teacher, whether it's a boss someday, whether it's the government or the police. It's good to obey the police. Jesus is pleased when you do this. So kids, you also need to remember that your parents are also under authority. So look at verse 21. Everyone can look at verse 21. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Now here in the first century, fathers were addressed. They had the primary disciplinary role in the family. But in today's context, even the word fathers could be translated as parents. So it's addressing parents, not just fathers. It's, it's, a, it's a broad command. So parents, in verse 21, God is commanding you to serve Christ by not provoking your children. That means you are not to treat them harshly. You're not to treat them in such a way that they become discouraged. You get on them so much and they become discouraged. I remember one time I was at a gym and there was a dad who was getting on his son so much about basketball. And the kid, you could see him just shriveling up and crying, and he kept yelling and yelling and yelling. That's provoking your child. That's causing them to become discouraged. It does mean, this command means that there is a way of parenting that will quench your kid's will to obey. So it's calling us not to discourage your kids so much that they just give up. 
and I'm in the thick of parenting with mo- many of you here, uh, and, and I fail in this all the time. Even last night, I'm about to preach a sermon on this, and I need to apologize to my child, one of my children, about being a little too harsh with them in something. So I'm in process along with you. But no matter how tired you are, no matter how frustrated you are, no matter how much your kids have done, you are not allowed to treat them however you want. They're not yours. They are the Lord's. They are a gift, but they are given for a time. They belong to the Lord, not you. So parents, this might be a time of self-examination. Maybe as we go to communion in a bit, or maybe later today, you, you could just take some time to reflect, where am I being, where am I provoking my children? Where am I being too harsh with them? And if you find areas of your life where that is true, this is a time for you to repent before the Lord, and perhaps to even repent before your kids, and to tell them that you were wrong in whatever it was. There's, there's really no other much better way to live out the gospel than to live in humility before your children, to let them know dad or mom is also a sinner in need of God's grace. Well, if you don't have children, you can serve families in this church by praying for them, specifically by name, or maybe more generally, and and you can just think about how could I help parents in this stage of life? If you're a little bit older, maybe you could be a mentor. I see a couple that could be couple people around who could be mentors to younger parents. Uh, You could babysit, perhaps at a very reduced rate, or maybe even free. You know, that, that would be really encouraging to somebody. Or you could serve and hope kids, or bring a family a meal if they have a baby, something like that. There's a lot of ways we can obey this command. Well, now we got to move on, moving from marriage to families. Now, in the next section, we see how to serve the Lord Jesus as master, as Lord at work. And right off the bat, just verse 22, the very first word there, when you read bond servants, you may be thinking, how can this, how could this even be in the Bible? The Bible is like so dated. It's so culturally inappropriate. Bond servants, your, your version may say slaves, which is a fair translation. Why is it addressing slaves? Well, let me make a few brief comments about that. First, we need to remember when this letter was written, which is in the first century. And slavery, the institution of slavery in the first century, was not the same as what we think of slavery, which is in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in England and in America, which was an inhumane way to treat individuals, forced labor, uh, forced moving around the world. That was wrong and evil. In the first century, slavery was a bit different in that it was many times voluntary. That wasn't the case in the slavery we're thinking of. It was not limited to one particular race. It it spanned all the races. And many times slaves or bond servants in this context could earn their freedom. So it was very different. This institution was so different in the first century as compared to 19th century America that the ESV translators have called it bond servants instead of slaves so that we don't go within our minds straight to what we think of slavery. 
And at this time in the town of Colossae, it is estimated that as many of one out of every three residents might have been a slave. At a time when there was no government assistance, when there was no help to try to find jobs, slavery in the first century, again, first century, was an economic protection for some individuals who had no other way to earn their living. But with all of that, even with all those caveats, even in the first century, there were still many abuses. I'm not trying to paint a good picture. It was not a good institution. It was a broken institution. But it is important to note, for the sake of defending your faith, for the sake of apologetics, that in addressing slaves and their masters here, Paul is not affirming this practice. He's not affirming the practice of slavery. Instead, he's addressing Christians where they're at, where they are, because Christians had come to Christ, some were slaves, some were masters, and they're thinking, how, what am I to do? What am I to do in this context? It's not unlike if someone in Africa who has multiple wives and is practicing polygamy, even today, what do I do? Do I do, I do divorce all of them? What, what, what am I supposed to do? So Paul is addressing Christians who find themselves in these broken social structures, and he's telling them how they can serve Christ in their situation. We need to point out that the New Testament letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, Philemon was in this church of Colossae. He was listening as this letter was read out. Paul wrote a letter to Philemon that addressed Onesimus, who was also listening when this letter was read out. He was a slave, and Philemon was his master. And in that letter, Paul is urging Philemon to, to, to set him free to uh, make him a brother as he is in the Lord, but also to set him free from being his slave. So Paul was not pro-slavery. The Bible is not pro-slavery, as some have suggested. It was a good thing that the slave trade was abolished. And in fact, it is Christians like William Wilberforce and others who used the principles from God's word to abolish that, that horrible practice. So that's a big kind of like parentheses because it's a big issue today. But all that to say in today's society, for us with slavery being illegal, the commands to slaves and their masters, they don't have um, the same application today. The most clear parallel or the most clear application in an institution we have today is in the workplace. It's not a one-to-one, I know it's different, but that's where we're going to focus our application in these verses. So in verse 22, Paul launches into these final set of commands, and he says, bond servants, obey in everything those are, who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Then he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You know, it may, you may find it really easy to work well when someone's eye is on you. If you're a student, if, if a teacher is watching you, you're probably doing what you should do. If you're an employee, if your boss is around, you're probably not surfing the internet at that moment. And there's a term for this, this kind of phenomenon. It's called the Hawthorne effect. It was because there was some studies done in the early 20th century right here in Chicagoland. And these studies showed that when workers believed their employers were watching them, their productivity increased. 
they, they realize, oh, I should be working better because somebody's watching. And here in these verses, God is calling us to work according to the Hawthorne effect. Not because our boss is always watching, not because someone is always over our shoulder, but because the Lord Jesus is watching. The Hawthorne effect in that the Lord Jesus is looking. He sees what we're doing. So from these verses, we see that God wants us to operate in this way. That's what it means to work with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Sincerity of heart is singleness of heart. It's where integrity comes from. It's a wholeness. It's working in such a way, whatever you're doing, you could be a stay-at-home mom, you could be a high executive, you could be an administrative worker, whatever you're doing, you could be retired and you're called to do certain tasks. It's working in such a way that you are acknowledging that he sees you, that he will repay good or bad for whatever you're doing, that he is impartial, that he will reward Even if no one sees what you're doing, he does. So I wonder if sometimes you do feel stuck in your vocation. You could work at Starbucks or on the stock exchange. You could be a homemaker or you could be homebound or retired. You could be a student or a school teacher. No matter your place in life, we are all called to work heartily. Could be translated work from the soul as for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not primarily to please our boss, not primarily to please our husband, but to please our Savior. If we approach our work in this way, we can turn it into worship, done unto God, no matter how boring or mundane the work we are doing. So as you think about your job, whatever God has called you to as a vocation right now, I wonder if you can say that you are working with sincerity of heart, as for the Lord and not for men. Are you working for a raise? Are you working just to get by? Are you, are you working to punch a clock? Doesn't matter what it is. What and who are you working for? Where does our motivation for this come from? How to work? Work as unto the Lord. It's in verse 24 knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. Now, the inheritance, if you remember back to chapter 1, is talking about the inheritance that is ours as Christians. We have done nothing to earn that. We are, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us. It is unfading. It is given to us. But as we're working, we, we need to remember that no matter how much money we have, no matter our station in life, we have an eternal inheritance as our reward. We need to remember that. Then it says, you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You see, friends, it doesn't matter if you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, or if you are staying at home with kids, or wherever you are, or retired. There is no partiality when it comes to paying back wrongdoing. The Lord sees, the Lord knows. He has his ways to discipline his children, both in this life and in the life to come. In the life to come, it's, it's maybe a loss of some reward. It's not a punishment, but a loss of some reward. And in this life, it may mean you lose your job. 
or something else could happen. So you see, how you work now will have ramifications, both here and throughout all eternity. So this warning that the, war- the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done should encourage us if we're working honestly in a place where no one else is, when we're not cutting corners where everyone else is in their work, because God sees everything that we do, and he has the ability to reward us appropriately. Well, sandwiched in between the promise of reward and this warning of punishment, Paul reminds us who our ultimate master is in the end of verse 24 by saying, you are serving the Lord Jesus or serving Christ. And this is really kind of the crux of the entire message, the entire passage, these words. The meaning of the word serving in the original language is performing the duties of a slave. So we might translate this as you are slaving for, or you are a slave of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. So it accurately summarizes the entire passage of all these commands, wives and husbands, children and parents, masters and workers. Jesus is Lord. Well, friends, Jesus left heaven and he became a servant so that we might be set free from the slavery to sin. That's what redemption is. It's language of being set free from slavery, the slavery to sin. And when we have repented of our sin and when we have trusted him with our life, he becomes our new master and he becomes our friend. And so I know some are visiting this morning. I know some are just still checking out Christianity. If Jesus is not yet your Lord, if he is not yet your master, you are a slave to sin. And sin is not a good master. So Jesus in, these, in this text is calling you. And hear his words even from Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, where he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, weary of your sin and the burdens that are caused by that, and I will give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, that, not the yoke of slavery, but his yoke, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. If you don't yet know Jesus, let today be the day where you trust in him and find rest for your soul. But if you do know and love Jesus, remember that he deserves our ultimate allegiance. He is our Lord and master, and if that's the case, since that's the case, we must do everything for his pleasure in the strength that he gives. Well, now we reach the very end of the passage And Paul addresses those who own bond servants in that context. And for us, that would translate into business owners or bosses. And so he says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You see, Paul here is hitting the same note that he's been hitting over and over and over again, this entire passage. Even the masters who in this first century context would have ultimate authority over their slaves are called out and they are reminded that they have a master in heaven. They too are under the Lord's authority. And it's for this reason they should treat their bond servants justly and fairly. So translation for today, if you are a business owner or if you're in a position where you are a boss and others report to you, 
you should hear this word as if to you, remembering that the Lord is your master in heaven, that you are accountable for how you treat them and all those people under your care. Well, now as we close, it's a, it's a power-packed passage. It's just command after command after command. You may be feeling a little bit crushed <laughs> under the weight of all these commands. You may be feeling unsure if you can really obey them. Can I really submit to my husband? Can I really love my wife in this way, etc.? Well, friends, if that is you, I invite you to take heart today, knowing that the same one who rescued you from your sins is the same one who empowers you to live the Christian life. These aren't commands that we just do and move on from. We need to keep putting them on or taking these things off, whatever the case may be, day after day after day. These commands connects our life with on Monday to Saturday with what happens on Sunday. Well, while he was on earth, Jesus made it very clear. He said, you can only serve one master. And so as we close, I would just ask you, who is your master? Is it the Lord Jesus Christ? If not, your call is to repent. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. That's your call today. But if, if so, let him into your everyday relationships. Let him into your marriage. Let him guide with his blueprint into your family life, into your work life, that you might honor him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are so good to us that you have not left us alone. You have not given us commands without the ability to obey. Lord, we see in these commands that we've gone over that you are a good master. You have given us guidelines for all these relationships, and you empower us to do these things. Lord, we know we fall short of what you've called us to do and be. But I ask today, Lord, that we might look to you, we might remember uh, what you have done, and we might live out of your power today. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.